0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. You've probably heard of the Tuskegee Airmen, the famous black troop of fighter pilots who fought in World War II. But have you ever heard of the Triple Nichols? At Fort Liberty, formerly known as Fort Bragg, there's a new exhibit devoted to the history of the 555th Army Parachute Battalion. Members of this platoon formed during World War II eventually became known as the Triple Nichols. They were the Army's first all-black paratrooper unit.
1: It was such a feeling that we were going to be training as paratroopers. Not waiting tables, not washing dishes, but paratroopers. And that was a very big thing. It's important that young kids, black and white,
2: know that
1: there are, in, in the
2: World War II, colored
1: soldiers did more than just wait tables and drive trucks.
0: That was Sergeant Walter Morris, leader of the Triple Nichols, in a 2012 documentary short called Triple Nichols, Pioneers of the Sky. Well, I'm here with Cherise Piggott, a reporter at WUNC who recently produced a story on the legacy of the Triple Nichols. Sharice, welcome to Do South.
2: Thank you, Leonita.
0: Well, you know, Sharice, I want to start by acknowledging your own experience with the military. I mean, you served as an active duty U.S. Marine for four years, and you also served in the North Carolina National Guard for several years. So so how has this
2: really informed your outlook and interests as a reporter? Well, I was connected to this story in several ways because— Walter Morris, he was uh, in the Army, and so was I. And um, looking back, I feel like he was a trailblazer, and he paved the way for me to be able to be in the military, serve in the Marines, and serve in the Army. And I think that's awesome.
0: So had you really ever heard much about, you know, the triple nickels before reporting on on this story? No, never. I hadn't heard of
2: them either. <laughs> And they seem to be fantastic. They are. I came across this story back in January of last year uh, when I was doing a story, a spot, on the State Commission accepting applications for the NC Civil Rights Trail markers. And the 82nd Airborne Museum on Fort Bragg, well, formerly known as Fort Bragg, but now Fort Liberty, uh, they had received one. And... um, I did the spot, they heard it, and the museum director reached out to me and told me he was excited that I was highlighting the triple nickels, but there was more information that I could check out. And so I checked it out and um, I wanted to do the story. You're like, how come this story hasn't been told before? Absolutely. I because, you know, I, I looked all over the the website for it and I was like, wait, there were some stories done by other outlets, but they were several years ago. And I was like, let's let's bring some light to this. You know, these soldiers were in the Army's airborne school, but they
0: weren't really allowed to formally train, you know, as um, is it parachutists? You know, um, they trained after the white officers left the
2: facility. Yeah. uh, So they were doing this uh, back in the 1943, uh, in the 1940s. And so the army had not uh, been, it was still segregated. And um, it was so bad during this time. You can imagine uh, that during um, being able to be on a military base at the time, black soldiers weren't allowed to go into the PX, but prisoners of soldiers, sorry, uh, prisoner of war soldiers were. So these were people who were a threat to uh, America, were allowed to do something that these black soldiers weren't allowed to do. That, that, that's remarkable. So
0: that's how, tell me a little bit more about how, you know, they went from being like unauthorized in their training sessions to like the official
2: parachute battalion. Well, uh, Walter Morris decided to step up and tell his men, hey, let's uh, go train the way we see these white soldiers doing. And he was doing so well that one day the commanding general rode by and saw them doing what they were doing. And he was like, this man, he should be a leader and we need to set something up. So they ended up being he ended up being a part of the test platoon to create the 555th platoon and which is known as the triple nickels today.
0: Well, you know, Sergeant Walter Morris, whose voice we just heard not too long ago, he passed away in 2013. But you were able to speak with his grandson, Michael Fowles, for your recent report on WUNC. So here he is telling the story of how the Triple Nichols became the Army's first smoke jumpers.
1: They were shipped out west. And this is what he shared with me. They were shipped out west Instructed to ship out west, they got in trains, and they were moving out with all their gear, thinking they were going to the Pacific Theater to fight. And when, it, when in fact, it was, they were directed up to Oregon, or the northwest, I should say. And before they realized why they were going there, not knowing where they were going specifically, not having any pillar guidance or any direction, uh, from their leadership, just with instructions to move out to, to a given destination, ultimately thinking they were going to the Pacific Theater. Uh, they arrived in the Northwest and the train stopped and they got off to buy cigarettes and, and, and what have you from a local convenience store. And the folks inside welcomed all of these black soldiers. Uh, said, you're finally here. We've been looking forward to you getting here. What they knew that the soldiers didn't know is that they were there to help fight forest fires uh, that was started by Japanese incendiary bombs. Uh, the operation was called Operation Firefly, and uh, they did not know how to put out fires. They weren't s- smoke jumpers yet. Uh, so they became smoke jumpers. Uh, they worked with the forest department, and they learned how to become smoke jumpers. And what's really interesting interesting is that in doing so, they invented tools and and procedures that, that were never used before and were so successful that they became a part of uh, normal operating procedures for, for smoke jumpers.
0: Well, that's an amazing story because I'm actually kind of drawn to a lot of the, the new television shows on now and CBS and other stations about, you know, fighting fires and especially out west in California so just to hear you know how these soldiers do we call them soldiers yes we call them soldiers (laughs) how these soldiers you know back in the fort, you know they they figured out how to as they say um smoke jump you know they became these um these um you know great um parachuters who probably some of the things that they did then are what people still do today to fight fires
2: yeah that's awesome um it's interesting to create something out of nothing. Like, they had no prior experience other than what they learned before, and they went over there um, and did their thing. I think that's great.
0: And it's also, I think, amazing that um, Sergeant Walter Morris's, um grandson, Michael Fowles, knows this history, you know, that it's been carried down, and that's important to bring the stories down through the generations. So, you know, Cherise, these soldiers thought they were heading to the European theater to fight in World War II, but they were routed to the Northwest. Um, Did the Triple Nickels ever see war
2: combat? They didn't. Um, until uh, the Army integrated them and they went on to um, the 82nd Airborne but disbanded the 555th Platoon. But um, the reason why they didn't deploy them also is because they couldn't get past 400 or 500 uh, people to be able to deploy to, uh, you know, European theater at the time. And so their only named mission was Operation Firefly. And um, now they they had did so well back then that we're still using the things that they learned during that mission. Those techniques,
0: well, it makes sense. They were sent to
2: the Northwest, weren't they? Yes.
0: (laughs) That's where we we hear stories of, of fires there even today all the time, actually. So what happened to the Triple Nickels, like, after World War II?
2: Uh, they were disbanded in 1946, uh, and mo- some of them went on to be civilians, and others continued being serving in the military and uh, fighting the fight. Well, you know, hopefully, the story,
0: you know, of the Triple Nickels will become, you know, better known with this new exhibit, you know, at Fort Liberty. Um, That's open now, you know, in our state. But what can you tell our listeners about, you know, where to find, I guess, any other exhibits?
2: Um, Other than the 82nd Airborne Museum, uh, we can go to the you can go to the state archives and find out other information that they have there. One important thing that I learned how to do as a journalist is utilize the state archives during this uh, feature that I was working on. Uh, I spent a whole day there uh, just learning how to uh, ask for certain things and, and pull up information. Um, so, yeah, you can go to the state archives.
0: Well, thank you very much. I can't let you go without telling me a little bit about what's next, you know, on your plate. You know, if you're working on any other uh, military stories right now.
2: Well, I am working on a spot that'll be about soldiers. It's called Soldiers to Agriculture, and it's a five-week program uh, in Cumberland at the Cumberland County Extension. And uh, soldiers who are transitioning out of the military, specifically Fort Liberty, uh, because it's a project. It's a, a partnership between NC State and uh, Eat. A.T. and Sorry. A.T. North Carolina A.N.T. Yes. State North University. Carolina yes. A.N.T. State University. Um, and uh, these uh, soldiers get to learn how to do mock interviews, resumes and uh, different uh, types of careers that they could get in agriculture. And um, if they want to be farmers, they can continue on uh, from that program and uh, get a career as a farmer.
0: Well, thank you very much, Cherise Piggott, is a reporter at WUNC. Um, She's been here for several years now. She started out actually as part of our American Homefront project as a veteran. And thank you for the work that you do. Um, And go Triple Nichols, right?
2: Yes, go Triple Nichols. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Next up, we'll hear from an
0: elementary school principal in Durham who recently won a prestigious national award known as the Oscars of Teaching. You're listening to Due South. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. Elementary education is the cornerstone of all future learning, and principals are tasked with the essential work of ensuring that every young student receives a solid foundation. Asia Cunningham is the principal of Pearson Town Elementary School in Durham, and it's clear that she fully understands that mission. She's a recipient of the two thousand twenty three Milken educator Award, also known as the Oscars of Teaching. She is only one of two North Carolina educators to receive the award this year and the first ever honoree from Durham. Principal Cunningham, welcome to do South.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: wow, that gave me I, I had to sit up straight to read that That's a big <laughs> honor um. First, congratulations on winning the Milken, and for our listeners, I'll just give a little background on the honor. It's awarded to early to mid-career education professionals around the country for impressive work they've already done and the promise of what they plan to do, and it also comes with an unrestricted cash prize of $25,000. So, I mean, how did you feel when you found out you won that big award?
3: Um, I think I was just shocked. You know, um, honestly, I it was totally unexpected. Um, I was gearing up for what I thought was a superintendent visit to my campus. And so I just, yeah, I was totally caught off guard. I was shocked. I was honored. Um, thought a lot about my mom. You know, like I lost my mom when I was 16. So just some of the things that she's instilled in me that no matter what you're doing, you're going to be the best at it, you know. And so it was just honored to be seen.
0: When you think about, I guess, your mom and others in your family, um, because I know in a lot of families, especially in African-American families, education and being an educator is like a rite of passage almost. It goes from generation to generation to generation. So I wonder if there are many educators in your family.
3: Actually, no. <laughs> really? You're the first one? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, my grandmother um, was an educator, right? Um, she was a teacher assistant um, in Kennesville, North Carolina. She was amazing. She actually was my, ended up being my kindergarten teacher. Um, but she was the only person in my family. We're full of nurse and military. Um, and then uh, long later, my aunt, she came into the field of um, education. And I have a cousin who came in as well. Um, but it's not. Yeah, it's not a field that's like heavily engrossed in my family at all. In fact, I never sought out to be an educator. It was not a thing for me. I, I was hoping to become like a U.S. Marshal. I got oh. my degree in criminal justice and public administration from the North Carolina Central University.
4: Go and, Eagles. Uh,
3: yeah, I I just I had no clue that this would be the pathway Um, But I did spend a lot of time after my mom passed and losing my dad with my brother and sister and watching their process through school and seeing how vastly different it was from my experience. Um, And that just, it propelled me into like feeling like I could make a difference in the field of education. Um, And so I took a leap of faith. Uh, became a teacher assistant, actually at Pearson Town, where I'm currently the principal. Um, And uh, i never forget going in and meeting Ms. Thomasina LeGrand. And uh, she interviewed me with Dr. Bracey, and, and, and it just took off uh, for me there.
0: Are you able to talk about that shift that made you go into teaching?
3: Well, I started out working with juveniles and doing some home health care therapy sessions with kids and seeing how, they were feeling about school, right? In addition to my brothers and sister and talking to them, I always found myself at the forefront of children, right? I remember tutoring at a company, um, 21st Century Learning Program, and um, we were housed in Fisher Memorial, which is a church located here in Durham on Fayetteville Street. And um, I was sitting at a table one day just working with this group of kids, and I had a director. She came in and she said, you know, like you really help kids understand the learning that has to take place. Like you have a good way of building this relationship with them and helping them get to know it. And I remember thinking at that time, like, Okay, (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I'm just I'm a people person anyway. That's just who I am. But the more I um, engaged in that tutoring program and I I took off in a field with criminal justice and I was like, yeah, I need to be on the preventative side. Right. How can I sit down with kids every day, talk to them and maybe be a transitional light for their direction? You know, and I feel like with my brother and sister. I can name the educators when I was a parent to them that really took the time to get to know who they were. You know, when I think about my brother at 10 losing his mom, that came with some challenges, right? Like it was him not understanding the why behind losing his mom, understanding how to function in life. And it was beyond just teaching him. He was coming with some social and emotional needs um, that some educators did not understand. Um, And I don't know that they were patient enough to see him for who he was. Mm. And that was the turning point for me. Right. Because I'm looking at a a young man who he's my brother and I'm biased because I love him. But he's such a gentle spirit. Right. Um, And to be wrote off, for lack of better words, because of how he was expressing his fear or his frustration. Um, And the same be true for my sister, right? The same for her, like watching her matriculate to high school and think about the educators that took time to truly understand the transition she was making and making friends and understanding where she was. Um, I just felt like because I have experience of working with kids, what if I just took a chance um, and entered the school and see what that would be like? Um, And so when you're thinking about working in juvenile justice, you know that some structures are in place that don't allow those kids the opportunity to transition that they are necessarily deserve um and so I wanted to try it and so I remember calling um, one of my colleagues Donald Barringer, and being like okay tell me about this opening that's at Pearson town you know it's and a place you cut. knew that
0: school you knew that's that place because yeah. you you um you said so you were yeah well you're like a student teacher you started you off early. I,
3: I was lateral entry wow. I was lateral so I actually I got placed with two teachers at Pearsontown, and then I was like, oh, I could do this, I could teach. You know, I had two good examples. They taught me about the curriculum, and so I went back to school to get my licensure. Um, and then I went to Vance County, because at the time Durham wasn't doing lateral entry, but Vance was, and so I taught there for three years, learned all I could, got the data under my belt, and then the opportunity came back for me to teach um, third grade at Pearsontown, and uh, came back and taught there.
0: Well, that's an amazing story, and very insightful because you're young too, when you lost your i mean, you had to it sounds like you had to really step up and um <clears throat> maybe you know you had to notice things that maybe you didn't even think you had to notice and act upon a, a, at your age. I'm speaking with Asia Cunningham, the principal of Pearson Town Elementary School in Durham. And she is the 2023 Milken Educator Award winner. That's a big award, Asia. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you because you know, you know, a lot of parents work day and night, or whatever shifts they have, whatever their career or even in their job. And when I saw my two sons, not necessarily struggling in school. I don't know what was going on, but all I could do was ask a friend's daughter to make me a design for a T-shirt, and uh, it was some faces on it, and then I had the logo, Are You a Dream Crusher? Mm -hmm. Because that's the only thing that I felt I could say and do, I felt, to make sure a teacher—I just wanted—I got her on T-shirts, so if there was a student-teacher, a parent-teacher meeting— or some event, I would even make my sons wear their T-shirt. I give them to my friends. Just are you a dream crusher? And if someone asked what that meant, then that gave you the opportunity to tell. But it hit me. I was like, my kids are with their teachers more than they're with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I was, I felt I wasn't seeing a light that I thought I saw. So I was like, so hopefully I'm not the crusher. Yeah. So what is happening? And and I know we had some great. Wonderful teachers in my children's lives, but I felt it's some some were probably were not, you know. I, I think, and so that's why I feel your award is very important because somebody saw that you um you weren't a crusher. <laughs> I mean, you weren't a dream crusher. You know, I think I need to copyright that. You know, actually, <laughs> are you a dream crusher? So how do you make sure? You know, for example, you stay this positive force, especially elementary school. You know, those are babies.
3: Listen, I don't know what most principals experience, but it is like being a celebrity. (laughs) You know, it is. You wake up every morning, you put your feet on the ground knowing, for me, there are 750 kids that I have to look in the face and I got to make the best decision for them right? Be it the programs that we're bringing to that school, being it the staffing that we have at the school, being the food in the cafeteria we serve them. It is, it's rewarding to walk into my building and hear that, hey, Miss Cunningham, the hugs, the laughter, the fun, sometimes the the discipline structure, right? Helping them to understand the whys through it, right? Um, and understanding them. we all make mistakes, right? Showing up for them as vulnerable and helping them to understand you're going to make some mistakes It's how you're going to respond to those mistakes. Right. And so I, I I just, I don't know. It's something that keeps me going. It's, it's the part of my life. I feel like I'm in control of, um, I can give back to them what all the educators that poured into me that saw me right. When I think about how I grew up, we had everything that we needed. Um, and my mom's push for me to go to college. My mom's push for me to make sure I was an overbound bound with the teachers that were going to help get me to school, you know. So I just, I feel like they're my why when I think about my career.
0: 750 cheerleaders. <laughs> That's exactly
3: <laughs> right. And the staff, 120 staff members that are counting on me to make the right decision.
0: So we haven't spoken about your own experience in um in public school. You know, how did you grow up? What kind of schools did you attend and did you have one or more teachers who really, you know, affected your life in a in a in a great way? And maybe 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 a teacher did or maybe a teacher didn't. But I'm definitely not down on teachers because I know some children go home and it's not a great home, too. Yeah. And so we need the teachers to almost level the playing field for that child. So tell me about your young My public young school staff. life. <laughs>
3: Um, I grew up in um, Warsaw, North Carolina. We went to school in what's called Kenansville, so Duplin County. I don't know if you know anything about it. Um, I know
0: Duplin County. <laughs> most
3: people do. We're muscadines, right? Yes. Um, so we, um, I was very few of African-American children inside of my elementary school classroom, right? Um, so just thinking about all the teachers that I encountered that saw something in me, you know, as an African-American child— um, and I can name some teachers offhand, like Miss Dawn Craft. You know, I think about her, Miss Virginia Boone, just all the people that hold you accountable. Like you're smart, you got to give more. Um, and really, them taking the time to teach me, right, in the areas that I was struggling in. Um, but also I was an inquisitive child. Like, why is this happening? Why? I mean, even now I ask a lot of questions, right? Like, why does it have to be this way? What about if we change it? Can I do it this way, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, with the talking comes, you know, intellect. They're like, oh, there's something there um, pushing me to be inside of uh, AIG programs. Um, just right alongside of my with my white counterparts. Um, but there also were students that I grew up in a neighborhood with that I didn't see getting the opportunities that I was given. Right. Um, and so you begin as a kid to see how things play out for others, you know, and, and who, you know, matters. Right. And that's true for our children that we serve now. Right. Like the involvement of our parents, we want all kids to get what they deserve, but we recognize that parental involvement piece is key for the success of our young people. Um, And so my parents, my mom was a cosmetologist and she was a nurse. My dad drove trucks. Um, So they didn't always have time to sit at the table with me for homework. Right. Some of it was I needed to figure it out by myself and I needed to call my teacher sometime and be like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Right. Who could I call? What teachers were there to support me? Um, Miss Betsy Fiedler, probably my fifth grade teacher, probably made the biggest impact on me. Um, because she just reminded me that even when you don't understand, there's always a way to figure it out. um, and she treated us all the same, like in the classroom, she held us all accountable. She built a classroom culture of relationships with everybody that allowed us to see so what Asia grows up in a single wide trailer, so what right? She's just as important in this classroom as all of you, you know, so those teachers it, are magic, yep, yep.
0: yeah. That's wonderful. You know, I'm really just <clears throat> remembering and realizing that, that you became a principal during the pandemic.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, yes. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> 2021, that wasn't a year to cheer. <laughs> I mean, I wonder even if your students were at school. I mean, I can't imagine. Were they doing virtual with the little ones? Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I met a lot of my kids. Um, we were doing packets at the time, so we did a lot of drop-off, like drive through come, the school. Okay. Um, so I got to meet them that way. But yeah, nothing in North Carolina Central University's School of Education prepared me for COVID-19. It was a year of creation, um, and we leaned on each other. It was It was, while it was difficult, we learned that we could do anything in education. A bunch of educators can get together and figure out how we can still have school, virtually and touch all the children at the same time, you know? Um, so there was a lot of home visits, sitting on some ch- some porches with families, like, let me show you how to use this computer. Uh, let me show you the software, the program, Zoom, how do we log in? You know, it was, whew.
0: How did you handle testing, though?
3: Um, it wasn't about the test
0: for me. Really? Right? Because I just, I-, I just remember hearing over and over how during those times— you know those third grade? T- I mean, the reading and everything was falling, but maybe coming back up now.
3: Yeah, I I have a great superintendent. I have to shout out Dr. Mubinga. Um, It was not. It was about the babies. He always tells us that it's about the babies. And um, while we knew the test was in front of us, we also knew that families were hurting, people losing their family members to COVID. It was more about the care for the students and give them all that we can. Mm-hmm. And when the scores come out, the scores are going to be the scores. We're in a pandemic, right? Um, now, the charge is how do we fix that fourth grade cohort to give them everything that they missed for kindergarten and first grade, right? Um, so I feel like the scores, that's the measure the state uses, but that's not the whole child. Um, and at Pearson Town, that's our goal. We nurture that entire child, and then we we, we work to the get the achievement score, but we really are in tune with who they are and what they bring to the table.
0: Well, you survived that in a, <laughs> in a big way. Um, I do have to ask you about this Milken Educator Award. I personally want to know what you're going to do with the $25,000. <laughs> <No one> Knowing <laughs> you, you probably give it back to the kids. What are you going to do with it?
3: You know, I have, I'm very religious, right? And so I, I haven't really narrowed down what I want to do. You know, um, I'm in school right now, too, so I'm working on my doctorate um, i I have a vision of something that I want to create that I think is gonna help you know some things in my in my field. um, and so really thinking how do I launch that as an opportunity for kids? Um, so
0: I wish I could have kids at all the rest of the mics and this. <laughs> In this studio, I would love to hear what they have to say about you. But maybe um, before we go, is there, was there a favorite book that you remember from elementary school or even middle school that you enjoyed reading? Did you have a favorite author?
3: Oh, I have so many books, but probably the story of Ruby Bridges. Mm-hmm. That uh, for me, it was just her determination and, like... That was in New Orleans, defying,
0: right? Yeah. Out of New Orleans.
3: Defying all odds. You know, all, all the things that were stacked up against her, having to transition to a new school, um, being an African-American girl. It, that story is so powerful. Escorted
0: to school to with marshals. Marshall. Is that why you wanted <laughs> yeah. to be a marshal?
3: <laughs> is that why?
0: <laughs> yes.
3: Yeah, so it's just... I don't know. That's probably the story that sticks out to me. I felt like I could relate to her, not just in um, being escorted, but that space of feeling like your purpose and trying to find out who you are and what you will bring to the world.
0: So... Well, thank you very much for all that you do and definitely all you bring. I'm sure your 750-member fan club (laughs) appreciates you each and every day. Asia Cunningham is the principal of Pearson Town Elementary School in Durham and a 2023 recipient of the Milken Education Award. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: After the break news on a much-needed inpatient mental health facility in Butner, devoted to children and teens. This is Due South. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. Emergency room visits for young people in mental distress have risen sharply over the last decade, according to a recent report in the Journal of the American Medical Association. To help the state of North Carolina address the growing need for youth mental health resources, UNC Health has opened a new inpatient psychiatric facility for children and youth facing mental health crises. The new facility is located 30 miles north of Raleigh in Butner. Here to discuss the services the new center offers is Dr. Samantha Meltzer-Brody, Chair of the Psychiatry Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Meltzer-Brody, welcome to Do South.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, North Carolina is ranked among just the bottom 10 states in the country when it comes to investment in child and adolescent mental health services. Number 42 out of 50, to be exact. You know, how did we get there?
4: Well, I think it was a complicated process of getting there over many decades and an unfortunate lack of investment. But I am very encouraged about where we are now. So I think what's exciting is that we just saw our state government pass a three quarter of a billion dollar budget this um, past September to invest in Department of Health and Human Services in mental health, a good focus of that on our youth. And this new partnership of UNC Health with the state of North Carolina to open this new 54-bed child and adolescent psychiatry facility is an exciting step forward. So I am hopeful that we're going to see a really positive, sea change in a positive direction.
0: Well, it's definitely needed. You know, depression is one of the many issues that are um, under-addressed in children and adolescents. You know, I have two boys in their 20s, and I tell you— It's been hard to make sure that they're balanced, you know, and that they speak up when they don't, you know, feel well. You know, it's a constant struggle sometimes. So what's the like the impact of going without mental health treatment for depression um, at a young age?
4: When depression or anxiety or any other mental health condition in our kids and adolescents is untreated, it can lead to very poor outcomes the worst outcome is suicide and we know that teen suicide rates have been some of the highest we've ever seen it can lead to underperformance and doing poorly at school having social interactions that develop poorly engaging in addiction and other things to try and self-treat so the endpoints are are really worrisome and that's why we all have to be involved in making the mental health of our kids a top priority and doing everything we can as a society to ensure that they have access to great mental health treatment with early detection screening, and that they get state-of-art care so they can have the best outcomes.
0: Could you tell me a little bit more about North Carolina and when we think of youth and suicide? And, you know, just how bad is that here?
4: Well, North Carolina reflects what we see across the country in that we see that teens have some of the highest rates of suicide um, since ever recorded. Um, Those rates are even higher in some groups, um, particularly underrepresented groups, kids um, who are on the LGBTQ spectrum. Um, We know that teen girls have high rates, but we know that it's just been high in general and that should get all of us very concerned and very serious about how to make mental health a top priority.
0: I know two things. I've definitely wanted to know, first of all, how much does the, the the pandemic, how much of a role did it play for some of these, like, elevated rates and youth mental health crises? And I also wanted to ask you, you know, do you find that parents try to play doctor When it comes to their kids' mental health, like maybe they don't take it as serious as, you know, I don't know, a broken arm or even COVID.
4: Well, we know the pandemic took what was a growing mental health crisis in our youth. And I like to say, put it on steroids. So the rates of poor mental health outcomes, the social isolation, the disruption in everyone's lives did nothing good for anyone's mental health. And it was particularly bad for our youth. Their lives are so intertwined with peers and social interactions, and to have that disrupted was extremely difficult. In terms of families, I think most families are doing the best they can, and parents um, and others can have all sorts of bias about mental health, depending on what they know about it, their own personal biases on seeking help. Families can try and seek help and not... um, be able to access care easily. So often the first people you talk to is the pediatrician. If the pediatrician doesn't have easy access to a mental health professional, it can just get really difficult. So I, I really like to say that I think families are doing the best they can. And every parent wants to do what's best for their child. I think all of us can help by making the conversation about mental health no different than any other medical condition. And if we acknowledge that, the overwhelming majority of people will have some mental health issue at some point in their lives. And for teens, it's incredibly common that we just see it as no different than talking about anything else. We help to normalize talking about it. And then we work to ensure there's not bias or stigma and people can get access to care. So, I think the first thing is for all of us to just say, this is common, this is worrisome. Let's make this something we talk about so no one needs to feel shame or Mm -hmm. embarrassed about asking for help.
0: Yes. What about rural communities? Um, I think I've read that the numbers are elevated, the rates are elevated um, in those parts of um, our state and just rural areas in particular.
4: I think that rural areas have historically and continue to have a great shortage of healthcare providers in general and of mental health care professionals. So one of the things that if there's any bright spot of the pandemic, it's been virtual care is now available in many rural areas areas um, for mental health care. At UNC Health, we've taken advantage of the opportunities to have our mental health professionals who are largely based in Chapel Hill now doing consultations across UNC Health entities in North Carolina. Many of the UNC Health entities are in rural areas and being able to bring the expertise of mental health professionals in Chapel Hill to our patients across the state. So that's been a really wonderful partnership made possible by the advances in in virtual care. But the fact remains that there's far too few mental health professionals um, living in rural areas. And so our patients that live in rural areas often do not get care or get care much later. So I think we all need to be figuring out how we're going to change that. And again, I think the opportunity with virtual care has been a very positive step forward.
0: Do you think that's one reason the 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 new inpatient um facility is going it's going to be in it's in butner you know it's not in raleigh you know it's not in charlotte um it's in an area that is pretty rural
4: well it's actually very close to durham so if you're on um 85 and you're in durham it's really not very far it's about 10 minutes further than one of the Durham exits. So that's the good news. So I think people think Butner and think way out there, but it's actually just north of Durham. Um, I actually can get there quicker um, from my office in Chapel Hill than I can get to Raleigh. So I think it's it's actually quite easy to get to. There's great parking. It's a really lovely facility. So I actually think it's very close um, to everything in the triangle and should the location should not be a barrier at all.
0: That's good to hear. I'm speaking with Dr. Samantha Meltzer-Brody, Chair of the Psychiatry Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and we're chatting about this new inpatient psychiatric facility for children and youth who are facing mental health crises. Now, will you be spending a lot of your time at this new facility?
4: So I'm the chair of the department, and I have the honor and privilege of leading the UNC Department of Psychiatry across many, many different domains. And we have spectacular leaders leading this new hospital. So the physician leader is Dr. Michael Zarzar, a very skilled psychiatrist and physician leader, and Dr. Barbarian Bible leading on the um, nursing leadership side. And then they have a wonderful team of child psychiatrists, psychologists, wonderful social workers. And everyone else that will be there to take care of the patients and provide the highest quality care. We're really excited about the innovation, and we're really excited about bringing top-of-line, state-of-art specialty care to our children and adolescents in North Carolina at this new facility.
0: Now, this this freestanding hospital, you know, dedicated entirely to child and adolescent psychiatric beds, that's not common, is it? I mean, I'm not sure if if, if these are all over the country.
4: Well, no, it's not common. There's far too few child and adolescent psychiatry beds in general. And freestanding psychiatric hospitals that are only focused on child and adolescent patients are much more rare. We have child and adolescent psychiatry beds at the medical center in Chapel Hill. This allows us to expand that considerably which we need to because the population of North Carolina, the population of the triangle has grown so much over the last decade or two. So we're really excited. There will be four special units and the first is open now. Each one will open, um, you know, um, over the next few months. It will be fully operational in the spring. And we're really going to be focusing on our kids and adolescents that need inpatient care because of concerns about safety, um, concerns about having a therapeutic environment. With this high level of care, we will be able to offer specialty care in kids and teens that also have addiction issues, in kids and teens that have neurodevelopmental issues. And so we're really looking forward to this being something that provides state-of-art care with a wonderful world-class treatment team to help our kids and adolescents that require inpatient psychiatric hospitalization.
0: I was wondering um, um, what parents can expect, you know, uh, you know when they um, actually, you know, seek help and maybe hopefully are able to um, bring their child to this facility. But I, I think you mentioned everything is covered.
4: Well, I, I think that, yes, we are hoping to be able to provide care for a wide range of of psychiatric disorders that impact our kids and adolescents. We continue to have child and adolescent beds at UNC Medical Center in Psychiatry, and this then is the freestanding hospital. We'll have many more beds. We'll be 54 beds. We want to be able to take care of a full range of disorders, and we want to be able to provide care to some of our sickest patients. We want to pre- be able to provide care often to populations that are harder to address with co-occurring substance use services, co-occurring neurodevelopmental issues, and to provide families with the support they need to navigate this journey. So often for families, it is so difficult when they have a child or adolescent with a mental health crisis. People feel very alone. They often feel very embarrassed. They don't know where to turn. And we really want people to feel supported, that they have the education, they have the support to, through their journey with their child, um, to enhance the best outcomes for both the child and the family.
0: Well, this is definitely a big step, you know, this inpatient facility um, in addressing, you know, this growing crisis. But, I mean, it's hopefully it's not the only proposed solution. You know, where else do you think, um, you know, we should be focusing our attention and addressing this, like in schools, for example? I'm not sure.
4: Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of information coming out showing we have got to make mental health access sort of frontline in schools. Kids are in schools. That's where you find kids and teens. And that that's often can be the first line. Teachers are noticing issues that there's collaboration with schools and parents and having easy access to care. So we have some partnerships happening now in that space, that we also support our pediatricians and primary care doctors in accessing mental health services, that they have comfort being um, frontline with things that initially present, but that they also have the ability to reach out and get specialty services for their patients and consultations as well. So there's multiple fronts that this has to happen on, supporting our primary care doctors, supporting our teachers and schools, making it easy for the teachers and for the primary care doctors to access specialty mental health services in conjunction and partnership with families. And then we also have to help address the underlying causes and work to support our kids to decrease the risk that they will develop a mental health disorder to figure out what the drivers are. And we know there's many drivers, many of them hard to combat, but one thing I think we all have to wrestle with in society is figuring out how we're going to make electronics and social media, something that does not just completely take over the lives of our kids and adolescents in very negative ways. And that's a work in progress, to say the least, but I think it's an opportunity for us to try and partner together to make things better.
0: Now, that's a full conversation <laughs> when we talk about social media and, and children's involvement with that and the role that it may play, and them just not feeling well and not being able to express that, especially to their parents and their doctors you know, thank you very much for um, for being here, Dr. Samantha Meltzer-Brody. Um, you're the chair of the psychiatry department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And really, I guess um, we're kind of chatting about some good news, you know, UNC Health and opening the new inpatient psychiatric facility for children and youth. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk today. I do see good things coming, and I do see an opportunity for us to take the new investments we have and make things better. So I'm optimistic about where we can go in North Carolina next. And I do think this should be just the beginning of all of us investing time, energy, and resources into the next generation because they are our future. And it is certainly a worthy cause to invest in. So I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Do South on WUNC. Many thanks to our Do South team Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, Rachel McCarthy, Denarius Thomas, Aaron Kiever, and Jeff Tiberi. I'm Leonita Inge. This is North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.